Have you ever wondered what it's like to perform an autopsy? Ever wanted to know how accurate your favorite crime drama is? If you're brave enough, join, join us inside the morgue. And welcome to Inside the Morgue. We're your hosts, Jess and Alice. As we were making our notes for this episode, we realized that there is only one specific theme to today, and that is firearms and gunshot wounds. So gunshot wounds tell you a lot about the type of gun used and how far the shot came from, and the show that we're getting into gave us this inspiration for the whole gunshot episode, and that is Cold Case, Season 7, Episode 9, titled Forensics. Cold Case, which is set in Philly. Shout out to Philly. We love that. This show follows Detective Rush, who is a homicide detective. She specializes in cold cases, which are just investigations that are no longer being actively pursued by the police department. On September 12, 1999, the Maynard High School debate team Invitational is underway. After a successful debate, Luke Cronin, a star debater, is approached by the coach Darren Musk of Maynard High School. Darren is trying to get Luke to consider debating with Maynard High. He offers him a full scholarship, and Luke says yes. But Luke's best friend, Ronnie, isn't offered a spot on the team. Only Luke is. So then we cut to a single car in a parking lot, and Luke is dead in the front seat with a single gunshot wound to the head. Jump to present time, which in the show is actually 2009. Shout out to the 2000s. (laughs) I didn't realize how long ago this show aired in. 2009, I was in high school. Probably, I think I had really blue hair at this time in my life. I was like fully trying to be super cool and emo. I still am. 2009, I was in middle school. So in the show in 2009, a current debate student named Keith goes to see Detective Rush. He tells Rush about Luke and about how Luke is a legend and that he shot himself the night that he lost a huge debate tournament. Luke was only at Maynard for three months before the incident. Keith is going through some of Luke's old tubs of files, which I didn't realize debate teams had entire, like, tubs. I don't think that I knew anything about what a debate team did before I watched this episode. <laughs> yeah, I, I knew very little about it. I only knew, well, I don't know if this was technically a debate, but in Mean Girls, she joined, oh no, that was like, was it the math team or something? That was the math team. She joins like a math team, but they still, they had to like, (laughs) that was like what I thought debate was like. Not debate. (laughs) My school did not have a debate team. Mine either. I wish I could have done like debate because I'm terrible at arguing. Like, I want to be able to argue without crying. (laughs) I have too much anxiety. (laughs) I get too anxious, and I can't form my sentences correctly, and I get frustrated, and it's it's a lot. They were talking so fast, too. Dude, right? I thought I talked fast, and then I could not even understand what they were saying. They're like, yeah, 400 words a minute or something. Mm, No, thank you. I know I talk fast, but if I talked that fast, I don't think anybody could understand me. Can you imagine if we talked that fast on this podcast? episodes would be like 15 minutes (laughs) 10 minute episode all right so the last case that luke used for his debate research has a strange note on the back of the sheet it's debate shorthand since debaters have to talk so fast like we just said they all use shorthand to keep up and keith says that it reads i'm going to stop you i'm going to kill you there are also some other shorthand symbols at the bottom but keith doesn't know what they say the threat letter is dated december 19th 1999 the same night he supposedly shot himself. If Luke was actually murdered, they need to set the record straight. So flashback to 1999, Luke was under a lot of pressure with debate, applying to college, and SATs. 
According to the medical examiner's report, it was a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. Trajectory and gunpowder residue indicated suicide. Gunshot residue consists of unburned or partially burned gunpowder particles, soot, nitrate, and nitrates from the combustion of the powder, particles of primer, which contains lead, antimony, and barium, and particles of the bullet or the bullet jacket that are vaporized when the firearm is discharged. We don't really use GSR testing in our office. It's not that reliable, but we do sometimes have detectives and state police do a GSR wipe test on decedent's fingertips. For Luke's case, there was no reason to suspect foul play. From the exam photos, the entrance wound is a star pattern, meaning the gun was pressed right against his head. This is a green flag, since we do look at trajectory and where exactly the entrance and the exit wounds are. And they are correct in saying that an entrance wound would have a star pattern. So this is actually called stellate pattern, and this is an indication of a contact range wound. There's usually an imprint of the muzzle around the entrance in the contact shot from the kickback of the gun. And the stellate or star pattern is created because the gases exit the barrel before the projectile. And as a result, the gases collide with a soft tissue and causes the expansion of subcutaneous space and pressure, resulting in the tearing and the lacerating of the skin, which makes a star pattern. Also from this, the expanding of gases causes back spatter of soft tissue and blood onto the firearm and the fingers of whoever is holding the firearm. So back to the show, they ask if there is still family of Luke still around to answer any questions about whether Luke was struggling with school and debate. They take a trip to visit Luke's father, Stan. Stan says he had no idea where Luke had gotten the gun, and he said that Luke's workload increased when he transferred to Maynard. Stan says that he hated guns, and he taught Luke that guns were never the answer to resolving problems. He remembers Luke saying that no one at Maynard wanted him on the team, and Stan never met Coach Darren, and he says that he wants the detectives to find the person who did this to his son. At Maynard, the detectives brought the shorthand note to Coach Darren. Darren says the note could have come from another debate team. Many people could have had access to the evidence tub. Luke was a very gifted debater, and he was the best of the best. He possibly had a target on his back because of this. So in another flashback to 1999, Luke's at Maynard in a debate practice and he makes the A-team with Alyssa, while an angry student named Oliver gets moved down to the B-team. And Oliver makes a threat to Luke that no one at Maynard wants him there. As soon as Luke died, Oliver was back on the A-team. Detective Nick brought all of Luke's evidence tubs to the precinct for the team to go through. They also want to talk to some of Luke's past teammates. Alyssa, one of Luke's old debate partners, is in Paraguay and missed her return flight, so no one knows when exactly she's going to be back, while Oliver, another past member of the team, has a criminal record that was expunged. His senior year at Brown, he had an unregistered 38 caliber gun in his frat house. This was the same caliber gun used to kill Luke. On firearms, caliber is the diameter of the gun barrel bore, and it's usually expressed in hundredths of an inch, like .38 caliber, or in millimeters, like 9mm, for example. There's four categories of calibers. There's miniature bore, which is diameter of 22 inch or smaller. Small bore is a 32 inch or smaller. Medium bore is between 38 and 39 diameter. And a large bore is anything that's 40 diameter or larger. Getting back to it, Oliver's father is a very well-known partner at his firm, where Oliver is now a lawyer, and that's how he got his record expunged. The detectives go to the firm to pay him a visit. He says his old roommate got the gun all those years ago. Side note and fun fact, the detectives mentioned that Oliver was on the Forensics Team of America. Now, this is not the type of forensics that Alice and I do, 
Forensics is a very collective term, and it's also used for speech and debate. It took me way too long to figure out why the title of this episode was Forensics. Back when I was, like, looking for jobs, and indeed, I would always put in forensics, and speech pathologists would come up, and I would be like, why are you coming up? I don't want you. Oh my god! That makes a lot of sense now. Yeah. I forget where I heard, I heard that on another podcast, and I forget now. I think it was the That's Messed Up podcast, which is another fun podcast if anybody's looking to listen to. And they mentioned that forensics also meant debate, and I had no idea. I wonder why. I know. I think there's some translation. There's definitely a legitimate reason that I don't know, but... Interesting. Very interesting. In the episode, I was like, I want to be on the forensics team of America, and then I was like, oh, never mind. No, I don't. Is that a club I can be part of? <laughs> We're going to start a different forensics team of America. <laughs> So back to the show, in another flashback to a house party in 99, Alyssa and Luke were arguing over their features and how they have different views on how they get there. She has a silver spoon advantage, and she's going to go Ivy League no matter what, unlike Luke. Oliver stole Ronnie's debate tubs, and in a misunderstanding, it looks like Luke was in on the prank. Ronnie crashes the party and gets into a fight with Luke. After Oliver got accepted to Brown, he could care less about the debate team since it was just a means to an end. Rush goes to talk to Ronnie, who is actually now a debate coach himself. He's never seen the threat note either. He did see Luke the night he died, but at that point they were no longer talking. He regrets the night he punched Luke at the party, but he didn't murder him over that. However, two days before Luke was killed, Maynard's security log showed that Ronnie was trespassing on the school grounds. Ronnie was only there to apologize and to try to get Luke out of that school and back where he belonged but Luke seemed extremely off when Ronnie was talking to him. He went into Luke's jacket pocket and found a pill bottle. Luke was taking dextroamphetamines. So this is a stimulant drug. It's very similar to Adderall, but it's not the same. They're both used to treat ADHD, but dextroamphetamines are much stronger than Adderall. And Luke was under so much pressure to keep up with Maynard's team, and that's why he was taking them. Ronnie never came forward because the cops had already said it was a suicide, and he and Luke's father were both a mess. So red flag, because somewhere in all of this, the cops had ruled that it was a suicide, like right there at the scene. And that is not something that happens. Cops and police do not rule manners of death. They are only there to investigate if the death was an unlawful act. And medical examiners and coroners are the ones that determine cause of death. That includes anything else that might have contributed to death. Ronnie didn't know anything about the doctor who prescribed Luke's pills either. But he did know the doctor's name, which was Melanie Banks. The team is still unable to translate Luke's debate shorthand notes, but they track down Banks, who is now a practicing psychiatrist in Colorado, but in 1999, she was actually married to Coach Darren. He was writing the team prescriptions, and he stole her prescription pad to do it. She does remember Luke showing up to her apartment two days before he died, though. If it got out that he was the one writing the prescriptions, he could lose everything. Some people will do anything to keep certain things covered up. Rush goes to the school and questions Coach Darren about the prescriptions. Luke did go to Darren's house two days before he was killed. He tried to give the pills back. Luke was losing his enjoyment for debate since taking the pills. Although he was winning, which is what Coach Darren only cared about, Luke was losing his passion. He wanted to debate a new case at the big tournament with evidence he was passionate about, and Darren pushed for him to do it. Alyssa agreed to the new case, but says that they had an argument at the tournament. Footage from the tournament shows Luke debating, but he stops midway through his argument and goes off the rails. Alyssa was not happy about this and wrote the shorthand note on the back of a piece of evidence. And this is the same note that they have in their possession now, and the one that they've been trying to figure out all this time who wrote it, and now they know. Alyssa wrote the note to Luke in the middle of their round, and she's on her way home from Paraguay now. They bring her in for questioning, and although she tries to act like she doesn't remember the debate all those years ago, she does. 
She was angry that Luke didn't tell her what he was going to do. Winning that debate was her only way to Dartmouth, and they just lost. She bit everything on debate and was basically flunking all of her classes because she couldn't keep up with school and debate like Luke could. The last words he said to Alyssa was, The only one who can judge you is you. At the bottom of the note, the shorthand that no one else could read says, You don't belong here. Go back to Oak Lane, which was his old high school. She regrets writing it, and to make up for her guilt, she helps the detectives translate all of Luke's other shorthand notes. The ATF report came back from the gun that killed Luke, and they tracked it to a gun show in Delaware. ATF stands for the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms and Explosives, and it's a law enforcement agency that protects communities from violent crimes, illegal use of firearms, acts of arson, and more. The gun was purchased by, wait for it, Stan Cronin, July of 1997. So, Luke's dad didn't hate guns as much as he preached earlier. They bring him to the precinct and question him about the psychiatrist he's been seeing for his PTSD from the night that Luke died. Stan says he did want to hurt someone that night, but it wasn't Luke that he wanted to hurt. Luke came home that night to see his dad upset with a gun in his hands, and he was intending to shoot himself. Stan thought he couldn't be the father that Luke needed, but Luke convinced him to hand the gun over to him, which put the gun that killed Luke in his own hands. That night, Luke drove his dad to the VA for his mental health. He was at the VA when Luke died. Stan shares the last thing that Luke ever wrote to him, but it's all in debate shorthand. The note was a pro-con list, and Luke was going to quit the Maynard debate team, meaning that Darren was going to lose his star debater. They bring Darren in for questioning, and Darren says that Luke wasn't actually serious about quitting. Luke never even told anyone that he was going to quit. If you remember, Luke's death was a contact range gunshot wound, and there is almost always back spatter involved, like we said, because of the expansion of gases. The crime scene unit went through every inch of Coach Darren's car, the car that he had back in 1999. It was a brand new car that he sold just one week after Luke's death. This may be circumstantial evidence right now, but this type of evidence doesn't lie. Circumstantial evidence is just evidence that depends on inference to connect it to a conclusion of fact. In contrast, direct evidence supports the truth directly without any need for additional evidence or any deduction or inference. The team found Luke's blood in this car that once belonged to Coach Darren. And we know that it's impossible to get DNA results back in just an hour. We know that, and thank God Cold Case knows that. But you can check blood type in that amount of time. They found his blood next to a tire hump where he stashed his bloody coat from that night. Darren says he knows when to call a bluff because he made it to the national debate finals in 1987. But he was actually the one that lost the debate. He had been blaming it on his debate partner this whole time. Darren disappeared after the finals, and instead of going to law school, he became a high school debate coach. The night Luke died, he had called Coach Darren at around 11.30 p.m. to meet him in the parking lot. Luke told the coach that he was quitting debate. Luke confesses that he pulled a gun from his dad's own hand just before, and he brought it with him in the car because he didn't know what else to do with it. Luke and Darren start arguing over Luke's quitting, and Darren says that without the scholarship and debate, Luke will be just like his dad. So the argument escalates, and Luke brings up the 1987 finals that Darren had lost, and then Darren, in the heat of the moment, picks up the gun and shoots Luke in the head. He puts the gun in Luke's hand to make it seem like a suicide. The ending of this show, I was so shocked watching it, and it just made me so sad watching it. He just, it was a student coming to him, being like, hey. Confiding in him as a teacher. Confiding him as a teacher, saying, hey, I'm in over my head, and my dad just had a suicide attempt. I might have to stop debating. 
And the guy was like, well, no. Debate is life. Can't allow that. No. Debate is life. I don't know. If oh, my gosh. Yeah. It's a crazy twist. It was a really good episode. I wish there was more of our type of forensics in it. Yeah. Because there's so much that goes into, like, gunshots during autopsy. So I wish that we yeah. saw, like, more of that. But yeah, there, yeah, there's a lot that goes into an autopsy when a gunshot wound is involved. We always look for entrance and exit wounds, which are very different. For contact wounds, like we said, the entrance has soot on the outside of the skin, a muzzle imprint, and usually the skin is lacerated from the effects of the gases. For intermediate or close-range wounds, there could be a wide zone of stippling at the entrance, and stippling is basically just when the unburnt powder is tattooed into the skin when it strikes you and it causes this pattern that can't be wiped off. And if you didn't know, entrance wounds are smaller than exit wounds because for exits, the bullet has expanded and the bullet either tumbled on its axis and that makes this exit larger than an entrance. And we always photograph the clothing at autopsy and we basically recreate the clothes if they're cut by EMS or the hospital and we try to see if there's any defects visible. If there are, we'll put like a blue piece of paper or whatever behind so you can actually see it in like the full scale picture. So we take the big zoomed out for reference and then we'll zoom in closer for like a close-up photo. Mm -hmm. And we also photograph the body and all the holes on the body and we use the L ruler to more accurately measure them. And on our body diagrams for cases with multiple gunshot wounds, we letter each hole starting with A and then proceeding down the alphabet from there. And you start at the top of the head and then go down the body. You need to differentiate entrances from exits, so you have to find the bullet tracks and match up all the holes. And all the holes should be accounted for, even if the bullet is still in the body. Like, you should know the path that it's going. So, for example, like, A goes to B or U goes to F, something like that. And we use bullet probes for finding all of these paths. And we recently learned that knitting needles actually work great because they have a blunt tip. Uh, so when you're poking around inside the body, you're not creating like other holes if mm -hmm. it's like a sharp edge. And you're not damaging yeah. or doing any more damage to a, a hole that already exists. Like you're not ripping through it anymore. It needs to have like a blunted smooth edge. Yeah, it definitely makes finding the path of the bullet way easier with the blunt tip. And sometimes you are able to establish the sequence of the bullets that were fired and that caused the injuries, but sometimes, like, this doesn't always apply to every case. Sometimes it's just way too impossible to determine which shot came first. Detectives are always like, okay, but, like, which one came first? We can't really say. In some cases, we can say, like, this one definitely killed him, and this was just, like, he probably could have lived if he didn't have this shot, but... Every case is different. But then lastly, we x-ray all gunshot victims to account for the number of bullets and bullet fragments. If there's any bullet still in the body when we x-ray, they have to be removed. And we have a phrase, never bury a bullet. Every bullet that's still in the victim at autopsy has to be accounted for and removed. We then photograph the bullets on their own with a ruler as a scale. And using a macro lens for this shows even more detail on the bullet. Like you can clearly see if there's any engravings or if there's ridge marks or whatever on the bullet. The macro lens enhances all of that. And then we store the bullets as evidence or we'll give them to the homicide detectives if they need it for their ballistics investigations. And as we've mentioned before, but you can't forget it, never remove a bullet using metal instruments such as metal forceps. This could create an artifact or imprint on the bullet, which would interfere with ballistics investigations. There's something called rifling in the bore of a lot of guns, and rifling is basically the arrangement of spirals and grooves on the bullet itself. These spirals and grooves leave marks on the projectiles that come out of the gun, 
and this can help connect a bullet or a jacket of a bullet to a certain gun. If we use metal instruments on any projectiles we've recovered, we could disrupt this pattern on the projectile, making it very difficult or impossible to connect the projectile to the gun. It's a very delicate process. It is. Ballistics and gunshot wounds are very detail-oriented. A lot goes into it. Yeah, I wish we got to see more of it in this episode. You know, we like to research a somewhat related true crime to the episode that we watch every week. And our true crime for this episode is the murder of Rex Bartley Copeland. Rex was a 20-year-old in his junior year at Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama in 1989 and was one of the university debate team's star debaters. However, the demands of debate, along with his challenging course load, were a lot for Rex to deal with, and he wanted to step away from debate to focus on his classes and on getting into law school. William Slagle, the team's coach, was described by other students on the debate team as a, quote, demanding taskmaster, and he was very unhappy with Rex's loss of interest in debate. On September 21st, 1989, there was a practice debate, and Rex's team lost, which seemed to clearly upset Slagle. And on September 22nd, Rex's body was found with multiple stab wounds inside his locked apartment. The keys to his apartment were found inside, leading police to believe that the murderer had access to Rex's apartment. Investigators found papers spread on the floor that seemed to be related to some type of debate preparation, and there was also a voicemail on Rex's answering machine from Slagle instructing him to come to practice. The voicemail was left after the approximate time of death and stated, Rex, this is Coach. Scott and I are here working on these files. We're assuming you're on your way or we'll be here shortly. However, two weeks after this, Slagle sent a letter to investigators from Nashville, Tennessee, confessing to the murder of Rex Copeland. Shelby County Sheriff James Buddy Glasgow filed murder charges against Slagle and stated that in the letter, Slagle said he was upset with Rex's performance in the debate practice and that he wanted to talk to him about it. Slagle continued in his letter to state that he followed Rex home, where an argument ensued, and, quote, just ended with murder. He stated he killed Rex with the student's own knife, then returned to his office, where he called Rex's phone to leave the voicemail in order to draw suspicion away from him. Slagle continued in his letter that he planned to get as far away from Birmingham as possible. He sent another letter later from Los Angeles International Airport claiming that he was going to complete suicide. However, before he vanished, he took out $10,000 from his bank account, And after about six months on the run, Slagle returned to Birmingham, Alabama, and turned himself in to Shelby County authorities in April of 1990. At his trial later that year, Slagle claimed that he was acting in self-defense. However, the evidence said otherwise. There was evidence that he cleaned up at the scene, removed evidence, and locked the doors to Rex's apartment after leaving. In December of 1990, after the jury deliberated for two hours... William Slagle was convicted of the murder of Rex Bartley Copeland and sentenced to life in prison. He was denied parole in 2001 and 2007, and he eventually died in prison in 2010. In honor of Rex Copeland and his life, the National Debate Team Tournament created the Rex Copeland Award that goes to the debate team with the best season-long performance and is awarded at the evening before the tournament begins. We got all the information on this case from a UPI article titled Professor Sought in Student's Death, a Gadsden Times article titled Suspect Turns Himself In, an AP News article by Hoyt Harwell titled University Debate Coach Sentence in Death of Top Student, and UnsolvedMysteries.com, all of which will be linked in our show notes. I feel like that's such a short time for deliberating. I thought the same thing, which is why I included it in my notes. 
Because I almost didn't even mention the part about how long the jury deliberated. And I was like, this seems important. I feel like jury deliberations can last any from like 10 to 12 hours, like sometimes even days. I was going to say they can last days at a time sometimes, I believe. Two hours. They definitely, they were like, yes, he, there is no argument here. He did it. This was not self-defense. It's it's just so sad. He was junior in college. He wanted to get ready to go to law school, probably do some really good things in the world, and this freaking guy thought debate was life. What also is funny, at the beginning of the cold case episode, they're like, this episode and events are not based on real-life events, but there's obviously a very detailed true crime that happened a couple years before the show came out. What, this happened in 90? 1990? Yeah. The murder happened in 89, and he turned himself in and was sentenced in 90. They probably wrote this episode either, like, 2008 or early 2009. So, like, 20 years later, yeah. Wow, that's insane. They always say it's not based on true events. They have to say that. I know. Jess and I were texting about this episode, and I was like, oh, I found a true crime, and I was telling her about it. She's like, wow, that sounds just like the episode, and I was like, I know, I always Google weird things after the episode, like, scuba, true crime, scuba, this, and they're like, debate, true crime, and very specific things pop up. I think our FBI agents love us for keeping them on their toes. Yes, whatever FBI agent follows me probably knows I have a podcast. Maybe they listen. Hello, if you're listening. I mean, you're always listening. Every week she's (laughs) Googling some other weird things. What is she doing? (laughs) It's always on a Sunday or a Monday that she Googles these things. I know. It's always always looking at very specific scenarios (laughs) for true crime. Post office, true crime. What is this? Scuba diver, true crime. Uh, Mortician, true crime. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just trying to think of all the... What will next week be? Who knows? I know. No. I gotta keep it up. Gotta keep my FBI agent entertained. He thanks us for that. So that is the end of our episode, and we tallied a total of one green flag and one red flag. This really was more of an informational episode, more than like a ripping apart CSI dramas episode, but I think the show is pretty accurate overall. But let us know what you think. Let us know if we missed any green flags or red flags. Thanks for hanging out, and if you enjoy our podcast, don't forget to share it, and hit us up on Instagram or Twitter and DM us with any show suggestions. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week for a brand new dissection. Bye! Bye.